You may open with me to the book of Romans, that first Pauline epistle that we come to in our New Testament scriptures. By the grace of God, we want to commence a study this morning of this epistle. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that we will not get to the first word of this epistle in this sermon. Because the contextual framework for understanding Romans is more important than the first few verses. We must understand Romans in its context like we understand any writing of anyone at any time in its context. Amen. And its context is going to set a foundation for us and a framework that's going to help us rightly divide, hopefully, by God's grace, if He's merciful, by the power of the Spirit, if He blesses us, with rightly dividing every sentence of this epistle. Amen. The Apostle would say in verse 16 of this first chapter, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There is never any reason for us to be ashamed of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a temptation in children because of their fear of peer pressure to not even want to pray before a meal when they're in front of others that are unbelievers. But we should never be ashamed of the good news, the glad tidings, the wonderful information of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the word gospel means. It means good news or glad tidings. And the apostle was not ashamed of it. He wanted to get to Rome so that he could meet those saints that were already believers there and preach the gospel to them so that they could encourage and rejoice with each other about that wonderful message that God has sent to us about His Son. I hope that you remembered, and I hope that you'll refer to the verses from time to time that close out this epistle that I read to you already this morning. Just think about them again. Now to Him, all the glory belongs to God. Amen. Now to Him, that is of power, He has the ability to do this, to establish you, I want to be established, and I want all of you established according to my gospel. What we find here in these 16 chapters, God has the power to establish us in these things. To establish our minds in the doctrinal, to establish our feet in the practical. He is able to do that. He has the power. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. That means to make it clearly known. And by the scriptures of the prophets, it's in agreement with the Old Testament. According to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And here we are thousands of miles and 2,000 years away from that apostolic era, believing the same things that they preached. And it's by the everlasting God who made a commandment that the gospel would go forth to all nations. And it was kept secret from the foundation of the world for the obedience of our faith. To God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. What else can we say except to God only wise? That he would keep the nations in ignorance and darkness for 4,000 years. And then the gospel would burst forth like a great light 
A light has shined, the Bible tells us, when the apostles took forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and preached it to Gentiles. This is a mystery of godliness that is without controversy. God was manifest in the flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed down in the world, received up into glory. That is an incontrovertible mystery. The world doesn't appreciate those six little clauses, but we love them from 1 Timothy 3, 16. Lord God in heaven, we are so blind by nature. We rebel against truth because we love lies by nature. Our flesh is so weak that it can barely accept any effort on our part to walk in the Spirit, to love the truth, and to follow that truth. We are constantly in warfare, our spiritual man against our natural man, the Spirit against the flesh. We cannot do the things that we should the way we would because we lack the power. But there is sufficient power with Thee, O everlasting God, our Father. And we pray that You would bless us now by Your eternal Spirit. With eyes to see and ears to hear and a mouth to speak. The glorious Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to make a revelation by preaching through this epistle that will make manifest that Will that you have had in the salvation for your elect through Jesus Christ that has been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Heavenly Father, open our eyes. Bless us with the truth. Show it to us clearly. Increase our faith. And let us understand this epistle. Save us from misdividing even one sentence of this book. Let us feast on every word. For man shall not live by bread alone, which we feast on every day, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And we believe the words of this epistle in our King James Bibles are the words of the living God. Bless us to learn them and know them. Lord, help us. We wait upon Thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Some of you have told me over the years that you love expository preaching. And so in our morning assemblies for some time to come, we are going to deal with this epistle to the Romans. It helps us learn the Bible because it's not just a subject taken from the Bible, but it's actually based on specific words of the Bible. And while both have their place, I appreciate your desire for expository preaching. What value should we get from this study? Let's rest on that foundation that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us when he answered the devil and said, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Amen. These are some words of God. They're put in this order by the providence of God that they would come first in the Pauline epistles. It is the fullest declaration of the gospel of God in the New Testament in any single one book. And we want to understand that it holds some of the things that we believe in high regard. 
in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and so forth. It holds the doctrine of the representation that we have in Christ in chapter 5. It's a precious book. We want to learn it. I hope that you'll make your efforts to do so. Scripture is given for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and we want to get all of that out of the epistle to the Romans. We want to learn doctrine. That is, we want to hold fast the body of truth that God has taught us through his apostles in the New Testament scriptures. We want to be reproved for our wrong ideas. Amen. We want to be corrected for our wrong actions. And we want to be instructed in the way of righteousness. And we're going to run into that in chapters 12 through 16. Right. Pray for your pastor. Pray weekly. Amen. Pray daily. Right. If you'll remember it, that we'll learn this epistle the way the Lord wants us to learn it. Pray that I'll rightly divide the word of truth and give thee sense to its words. Pray that we will grasp all the Holy Spirit intended no more from this epistle. Pray that I'll make it manifestly clear and use great plainness of speech, as the apostle said we ought to speak. Pray that I'll do it boldly and authoritatively and bring its power to bear in your life. Let us pray that we will put it into practice as we learn it. Let's pray that we will follow a course by my choice of pace and my choice of methods that will optimize our learning. And let us pray that we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ in its pages, its verses, its sentences, and its words that we'll love our Savior. For He is coming soon to receive us to Himself and we'll be with Him forever. I am less than the least of all saints for starting such a project. And it's just out of pure fear that takes me so long to have gotten to this epistle. Because until I reach a certain level of satisfaction that something is done as well as it can be done, I don't do it. But here we are, standing on the precipice or the threshold of the epistle to the Romans. You know, Peter himself would write in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul has written in his epistles things hard to be understood, which the unlearned rest to the destruction of their own souls. So there's a sober warning in the Word of God itself about the Pauline epistles. We want to be careful. My brethren, for those of you that have been around for a while, I want to bless the God of heaven before I go into this epistle for what he did for us in 1988 with the epistle to the Hebrews. Amen. By the grace of God, By the grace of God, and this is not boasting except to boast in the Lord. We understand Hebrews better than anyone on the face of the earth that can be identified. That's right. It is by the grace of God that he would take Balaam's transportation and show him the truth of the book of Hebrews. It's an unbelievable blessing. I recount it because I'm begging God to show us the same favor as we go through the epistle to the Romans. God graciously opened heaven and shed light on the epistle to the Hebrews and put it in perspective so that we could answer what are considered some of the Gordian knots of the New Testament. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Those are difficult words. The Arminian says that, see, you can lose your salvation. But the Arminian's wrong because it says you can't get it back. Right. The Calvinist looks at it and says they never had salvation. 
But the whole context says they most definitely did. And Paul was preaching to a specific group of people he called holy brethren and was warning them by 6, verses 4 through 6. I was taught that it was an impossible hypothesis. So it had no value at all. If it's impossible, why even tell us about it? That's right. We know exactly what it's referring to. It's referring to a generation that was under the curse of Almighty God for rejecting His Son and crucifying Him on the cross of Calvary. And if any of those believers rejected the gospel of Christ and went back to the animal blood and sacrifice of Moses' law, they would be judged with the rest of the nation because a curse was on that nation from which there was no recovery. Just like the generation in the wilderness, when they repented and said, we have sinned and we will go up and take the land, it was too late. And therefore, in chapter 4, God said, let us, let us. Do you think Paul was saved, you Calvinists? Let us, therefore, fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Amen. Hebrews 6 is a 70 A.D. issue. Right. How about chapter 10? For if we sin willfully... After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain and fearful looking for of judgment that shall devour the adversaries. How many saints have ever read that passage and thought that it told them that if they had sinned presumptuously, it's over? Right. Well, if it's over, then it's over, Arminians. So if you ever sin after you're saved, there is no recovery, according to Hebrews chapter 10. And Calvinists, it's not talking about false professors because it was talking about Paul. If we sin willfully, what is Hebrews 10 talking about? The very same thing. Amen. The very same thing. What certain and fiery indignation was going to devour the adversaries? The baptism of fire that John the Baptist had preached about, burning up their city that Jesus had talked about in his parables, the judgment that was going to fall upon Jerusalem and Judea and the Jews for crucifying the Lord of glory. Amen. That if we sin willfully, that was apostasy from the truth of the gospel back to follow Moses right. and the Jewish system. You do despite to the Spirit of grace and you trample the Son of God underfoot and crucify Him afresh. It was a horrible sin. Oh, thank you, Lord. There's two more passages just like those two. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 12, verses 25 through 28. All four passages describe irremediable judgment on those who sin. And the Lord showed us that. Amen. I, and I went through that little reminder to bless God and to remind you of what the Lord showed us. Right. He didn't do it all at once, brethren. When I entered into the epistle to the Hebrews... I was going to preach Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 the way I had been taught. But as we went through it verse by verse and we got into chapters 3 and 4, the blessed God of heaven showed me the importance of chapters 3 and 4 and the comparison between that generation of Jews and the generation in the wilderness. I mean, he repeats his message over and over Amen. And there were questions in Hebrews chapter 4 because some of the wording appears to be a little convoluted if you don't read it very carefully. And so I was slowed down in those chapters by the congregation and God convinced us in those chapters what chapter 6 was all about. Amen. Bless the Lord God of heaven. Right. 
I love the book of Hebrews. It's the best book in the Bible for preaching the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ personally and all the glorious aspects of his position as our Savior. But we come to this epistle. What are you going to do to help me? What are you going to do to help yourselves? You could read a chapter in the morning and a chapter in the evening. You'd cover the whole book every week. You could memorize one or more favorite verses from each chapter. You could listen to the sermons again during the week taken from our website. You can pray for me. Those who are prepared and studious will far outstrip the casual and the neglectful in learning the epistle. When we finish, I want you to be able to teach it to your children. I want you to understand it well enough that you could teach it and hopefully defend it in certain respects. Those who are experienced in in debating salvation with Arminians and with Calvinists and with others will benefit the most. Because they're going to understand that when we put a sense on some of these verses, how it takes away the Arminian or the Calvinist use of those verses. So the more experienced you are, you're going to benefit more. That's why the Bible says those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil are the ones that benefit from the preaching of God's Word. The rest still need milk year after year because they haven't progressed. That's Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Brethren, the context is of crucial importance, and that's why we won't even get to the first word this morning. The context. The context is everything that is around a sentence so that you can understand it and know what it's driving at and what the purpose of that sentence is. When we, when we sit in a spelling bee in our school systems, or if, if you have a spelling bee in your school system, a wise student always asks, please use that word in a sentence. Because hearing that word in a sentence tells you about that word. The word bored. You know, if, if, if a teacher were to say to me, spell bored, please use it in a sentence. Are you talking about me being bored because the subject matter is not interesting? B-O-R-E-D. Or do you want me to spell what a two-by-four is? It's a board. B-O-A-R-D. We learn that by hearing it in a sentence. Ha-ha! But you take the word B-O-A-R-D. Is it the board that runs every company in America? Called the board of directors? Or are you going to go right on the board, meaning the blackboard? Or are you going to use a board to build something? Or are you talking about providing food for a guest called room and board? That's context. If you were to grab an email of me written to my father, and you found the sentence that said, I beat my wife last night, and I had so much fun doing it because she's beaten me the last five nights. If you were to find that sentence, you'd be wondering what kind of activities that Sherry and I engage in out of your sight. It could be who got into bed first. It could be who won the hundred meters over at the local track. It could be playing checkers. One thing I can tell you that it wouldn't be, that she beat me the first five nights. Do you know what they do with the book of Romans? Pick, pick, pick. We do not base our doctrine on sound bites. 
We don't base our doctrine on sound bites anymore in Romans than we do in Revelation when they come to Revelation 3.20 and find Jesus standing and knocking at a door and saying, If any man will hear and will open the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. That verse doesn't have a thing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with fellowship. They've never read the context. They've never looked around the verse. They've never thought of the fact this was written to the church at Laodicea. This was written to believing and baptized saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with gaining eternal life and having your name written in the book of life. Context is of such great importance. When you read the minor prophets of the Old Testament, you've got some that deal with Nineveh, some that deal with Edom, some that deal with Israel before the dispersion, some that deal with Judah before the captivity in Babylon, some that deal with Judah after the captivity in Babylon, and so forth. You better know the context of the book that you're reading. Hebrews was made simple by two simple things God showed us. The title of the book and the date of the book. The title of the book is Hebrews. It was written to Jewish converts, not Gentiles. Two, it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem because Paul makes reference to the altar and temple of the Jews in the latter chapters. We're thankful to God for that. A simple rule for remembering context is to ask six questions when you look at a passage. Who, whom, why, what, when, And where? Six W's. Ask those questions and it will help you. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? Why was it written? What was conveyed and what methods were used to convey it? When was it written? And where was it written? And if you get those six questions answered, you can figure out that I beat my wife in a hundred meter dash. After she had beaten me five times in a row. That didn't happen either, but uh, you would find that out from the context. Thank you, Lord. Context is our master, and we are its slave. And we are willingly its slave. I want to chase it one, one, one little bit more. Context is so important. We have a good brother in, uh, in St. Louis who is taking up a debate with a Presbyterian pastor on the subject of the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the first passages they raise is Psalm 2-7. Listen to this. Psalm 2-7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. They say, see, that's the eternal day. That's the eternal day when God begat the Son of God by eternal generation in the past. You've got to read their commentaries on it. It is mind-blowing. The degree of ignorance by men who have THDs. You find it in every profession, and it's just as true in the ministry. That's quoted by Paul in Hebrews 1.5. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We would tend to think, with a superficial study... That must be Mary's birth of Jesus. Yes, I believe in incarnate sonship. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That must have been God in heaven speaking when Mary gave birth to Jesus way down there in Bethlehem. No. 
If you look at the context of Psalm 2 and Hebrews 1, it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and His ascension into heaven when He was declared by God to be the Son of God. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee by declaration that He was the Son of God by His resurrection. Romans 1.4 is going to teach us the same thing. It just Romans 1.4 is going to teach us that same thing. But if you look at Psalm 2, it's all about Jesus Christ glorified. If you look at Hebrews 1, it's all about Jesus glorified, being made higher than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. But you don't need my explanation. All you need is Acts 13, verse 33, where the Apostle Paul quoted Psalm 2-7 and said it applies to the resurrection. Amen. Thank you, blessed God. Amen. Yes. Yes, you theologians, you're deep. You're so deep, no one can figure you out as to how God begat the Son of God in eternity without a mother. Especially when Psalm 2 doesn't have a thing to do with it. The audience is the Romans. We want to look at the whom of this epistle. He specifically addressed some of these readers as Jews in 2.17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. So we know that there were Jews in this assembly. There's so much more that could be said. I've got five hours of material on just the introduction of the book, but just give, give me a few more minutes. And we'll look at the whom, the who, the what, the when, the why, the where, and what we're going to get from this epistle. And we're going to look at the foundation that we're going to have going into it. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 10, and let's see where this church may have started. Acts chapter 2 and verse 10. We find a very very special little statement made about the day of Pentecost, about who was there. Listening to Peter preach that first sermon and responded by saying, Men and brethren... What shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 did that day, and 5,000 the next day, and many more were added to them in the days following. Chapter 2 and verse 10, there's a list of 15 plus different national groups or cultural groups of those that were there on the day of Pentecost. And I want you to notice verse 10. Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. There were strangers from Rome in Jerusalem. Strangers being because they didn't live in Jerusalem, they lived in Rome. And they were visiting to be there for Passover and Pentecost that were separated by 50 days. And they were not only Jews, but they were Gentile proselytes as well. There were, there were Jews and Gentiles, and you know in the book of Romans we're going to hear the words to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Even us whom he hath chosen, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, because both groups are in this church. This is a mixed church. We're going to need that when we get to Romans 14 about Christian liberty, because the Jews, many of them became vegetarians, to avoid meat offered to idols. And Paul's going to warn the Jews that they're weak for that choice. And he's going to warn the Gentiles, don't you abuse the poor Jews that are still fearful of eating meat offered to a pagan idol. And we can gather that by looking through the epistle, and we can gather that by going to Acts 2.10 and finding out about the first converts that were in the city of Rome. We can find out that some of those converts that were in the church at Rome had been converted well before Paul. Look at Romans chapter 16. There were some long-standing saints in that church. 
or churches who says there was only one church in the city of Rome. Rome was a huge city. It was the capital of the empire. It doesn't say to the church at Rome. It says to the saints that are in Rome. Because in chapter 16, it leads us to believe that there were several assemblies in that city. But but I want verse 7. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. So we've got some long-standing saints, some long-term believers in the church that was at Rome. Paul praised these saints. You know verse 8 of chapter 1, don't you? Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. But right here in chapter 16, before we leave the chapter, look at verse 19. Your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. There's something God wants you simple or ignorant about, and that's evil. And there's something He wants you knowledgeable or wise about, and that's good. The good things of truth and righteousness and the evil things of sin and wickedness. And he makes a difference there. But what we want is the first clause of the verse. Your obedience is come abroad unto all men. Out of those saints in Rome, it had gone to all men. All the converts, all the churches, everyone had heard about the obedience of the Roman saints. They'd been there for quite a while in a church capacity because Paul is going to use expressions like, At length I have wanted to come and visit you. Oftentimes I sought to come and visit you. And after many years, I'm finally going to get to do it. Or hope to do it. There may have been more than one church. Look at verse 5 of Romans 16. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Now think about that. If you're greeting a church that is meeting in someone's house, are you part of that church? Greet the church that is in their house. That's in verse 5. We can come down to verses 14 and 15. Salute a syncretus, phlegon, hermus, patrobus, hermus, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philogus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. So we've got group, we've got gathered groups of saints in and around the city of Rome. The saints that be in Rome could have been in several churches, as these verses indicate to us. We're going to come back and take every one of these verses apart by the grace of God. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul would even mention when he is in Rome and writing from Rome, he would say that they of Caesar's household greet you. That there were even converted members of Caesar's household. Praise the Lord. I heard your prayer this morning and so the Lord. Travis, can you believe Caesar, who put the Apostle Paul to death, had some of his household converted by the Apostle Paul and, and worshipped with him in the church that was at Rome? Is that, is that pretty good? That's the grace of God. It can reach anywhere. Amen. How about the author? The first word in this epistle is Paul. You know, very different from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, the Lord and Paul did not want the author to be known readily. Because context, context. Thank you, Lord. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote Hebrews, he didn't give his name. How does that epistle start out? Oh, and it starts out wonderful. Don't get me going. God. 
who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Oh, it's wonderful language, but it doesn't mention Paul one bit, does it? Because if Paul had written Jews, they would not have read an epistle by him because they believed he was a traitor to their nation because he was spending so much time with the Gentiles. But here, the Lord wants us to know. So we have Paul, and he's a perfect author of this epistle. Does it have his apostolic seal on this epistle? Does Paul tell us that every epistle that he wrote, he puts his seal on it, and that seal is, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Is that part of the New Testament, or is that just tradition? That's New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3, 17 and 18 tells us that Paul said, every epistle that is mine has my seal. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Is that in this epistle? Sure. 16.24, in front of those three verses that I've read to you twice this morning. Since Paul had never been to Rome, we can understand why this is a fuller explanation of the gospel than his other epistles. His other epistles, he had formed those churches. He had taught them verbally, so all he needed was a little bit of a follow-up. But Rome, he hadn't been there before. He tells them that three times, and he wanted to be there, but he hadn't been there yet. So it's a, it's a lengthier epistle. The Apostle Paul had great learning. He's a perfect writer for this epistle. Even though the words are truly and clearly and completely the words of the living God. He was eminently qualified to write this epistle because he'd been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you read Galatians chapter 1 last night, it says this in verses 11 and 12. I certify you, brethren. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you like having a certified writer of a book? I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. I did not get this from any man. This is not from tradition. It's not from a seminary. I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ taught Paul directly and personally. That's why he'll say about the Lord's Supper, That which I received of the Lord, I delivered unto you. The Lord's Supper, described in 1 Corinthians 11, was not because Paul sat at the Last Supper with Jesus Christ and took his lesson from there, but it's because Jesus taught him directly about how to hold the Lord's Supper. And he gave that to us in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul was eminently... There's so much more that could be said about Paul. Do you know how long a study of Paul would take in its own? Forget it. Go home and grab yourself a good Bible dictionary and read about Paul and look up all the verses that it has there. That'll, that'll take you a couple of weeks. Paul was eminently qualified to write about Christianity because Jesus Christ, the head of Christianity, had taught him personally. Paul was eminently qualified to write against Jewish legalism because Paul had been trained under the rabbis to be a Jewish legalist, his father being a Pharisee and he being a Pharisee, and brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was Paul's tutor and teacher. He had been taught everything there was to know. That's why we can read in places like Philippians 3 and 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul would say to himself, Are you a Hebrew? I more. Trust me. Any of you that want to object... I have more credentials than you. Nevertheless, I consider them all dung for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Gentile Christians should rejoice that God raised up a special man to be the apostle of the Gentiles. And that is Saul of Tarsus made into the apostle Paul by the grace of God. And throughout the New Testament, Paul magnifies his office. 
I am the apostle of the Gentiles. When he got to Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, that were pillars in that church, made one agreement. Paul, you keep going to the Gentiles because it's obvious that God has chosen you for that work and will keep going to the Jews. He was known throughout the New Testament as the apostle to the Gentiles. He is our beloved brother, Paul. The vast majority of those that have been converted by the gospel since the days of the apostles have been Gentiles. That's why the majority of the epistles of the New Testament were written by Paul. This is our beloved brother. God raised up Paul for you, is what I'm trying to say. And for me, he had a special office and he gloried in it. And we're going to come to that. There's going to be times where he's going to appeal to that, that he is the apostle of the Gentiles. What's the purpose? The purpose is to set forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news about what God has done through Jesus Christ to save condemned sinners. That's the purpose of the book of Romans. To establish them in that fact and then to show it to them so clearly that they would adjust and modify and conform their lives to look like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Jewish-Gentile controversy... (laughs) controversy over justification that is the basis for this book. This is where we start to get very important. We're covering very important foundation right here. Hear me well. The Jewish-Gentile controversy as to how a man is justified legally is the issue that motivates most of this epistle. The greatest enemy that the apostles had in the New Testament, and the greatest enemy that the apostle Paul had, were Jewish legalists out of Jerusalem who had the weight of the city of Jerusalem behind them that taught you needed to keep the law of Moses, you needed to be circumcised, you needed to keep the Sabbath days in order to be just before God. You can have Jesus as long as you make sure you keep the law of Moses and circumcision and the Sabbath as well. He was fighting against it the whole always. Acts 15. He was at Antioch when men came up out of Jerusalem. It says come down out of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a higher altitude than Antioch. But it's 300 miles north. And so he went to Jerusalem and we have the Council of Jerusalem because of that controversy. The whole book of Galatians is about that controversy. Philippians chapter 3 is about that controversy. Ephesians 2 and 3 is about that controversy. Colossians chapter 2 is about that controversy. Jewish legalists who wanted to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it is the case here in Romans. And this is very important when we read the epistle, especially the first four chapters. We must have this down solidly. The Apostle Paul used the word law 78 times in this epistle. That's twice as often as in the epistle to the Galatians. Because he was dealing with the law of Moses. This church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. They were corrupted with that Judaistic, Judaizing theory and heresy that you had to add some of the Old Testament. We can't just discard the whole thing. Oh, yes, we can. Because it was nailed to his cross. And so we had that controversy here as well. Did you know he refers to circumcision 15 times? Circumcision 
What's he referring to that to? It's not a requirement under the New Testament because he has to undo those Judaizers. It's only mentioned half that many times in the book of Galatians. He refers to Israel ten times. He refers to Abraham nine times. Why is he referring to Abraham so much? Because he's showing them arguments that confounded the Judaizers. Because Abraham came long before the law of Moses. Never forget that. Do you know what Paul's argument against circumcision is? When did Abraham start circumcising? Did he have the law? No. Oh. What did he have? Faith. Oh. So faith must be more important than the law. And faith came before circumcision. And circumcision was just a seal of his faith. He argues that way. We can say the same thing about the Sabbath. Did Abraham have faith and was he the friend of God in Genesis chapter 15? Yes. When was the Sabbath introduced? In Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapters 14. He refers to Jews and Gentiles in the same verse nine times. Because he's putting them together. That there's no difference. They're all condemned by sin. That there's no difference. Jesus Christ saves the one the same way he saves the other. He's got a whole chapter dedicated to liberty regarding Jewish things in chapter 14. He's got three whole chapters dealing with God's plan for Israel, chapters 9 through 11. This is very important. We do not encounter Jewish legalists very often. But God in His providence has helped us out with that recently. We encounter Arminians and we encounter Calvinists. Paul had never met an Arminian, and he had never met a Calvinist. He had met Jewish legalists, and he had met lascivious carnal Christians, because he makes reference to them, but he hadn't met a Calvinist or an Arminian. There's no reference in the Bible that would indicate that. They didn't exist yet. We want to remember this very... If we ignore or understate the importance of this point, we shall err interpretationally. When we go into Romans chapter 3 and 4 and we find the word faith, we are not going to jump to the foolish conclusion that the single word faith means a sinner kneeling in a prayer room with a rote prayer inviting Jesus into his heart in order to be justified. That is putting an Arminian context into Romans 3. We are not going to look at that as God sovereignly bringing about the conversion of His elect that a Calvinist would put on it. We are going to look at that word faith differently as being set in distinction to the Jewish law-keeping of Judaizers. We are going to understand that Paul's going to use the word faith loosely. He's going to have several different senses on that word that we, who have to debate Calvinists and Arminians, would sometimes wish... He used that word faith a little differently. But that just makes us work a little harder, and the reward is a little sweeter. And understanding it. Please, understand this. The greatest threat to New Testament Gentile converts were Jewish legalists pulling for Moses to be added to the Lord Jesus Christ's finished work. We must remind ourselves often as we go through this epistle that Paul's choice of words was against Jewish legalism, not against Arminians. So when we find terminology that almost sounds Arminian, it's not because he was trying to make a distinction between Calvinists and Arminians, but rather between the truth and Jewish legalism. Paul never met a Calvinist who believes human faith is the means of legal justification. Paul never met an Arminian who believes a short sentence of faith can save souls. 
So we're not going to jump to the conclusions of their sound bites. They love the words, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Sola fide. Sola fide. Faith only. Faith only? You're not going to make it. According to James chapter 2, the just shall live by faith. Does it say that the just become just by faith? Does that sentence say the just become just by faith? Does it say the just get life by faith? Or does it say the just, they're already just, live by faith? Thank you, Lord. Is that simple? That is so simple. We get to that in verse 17 of chapter 1. We'll be there shortly. We're not going to take verses like 623 and have me peel off this fake gold. I'm not going to use Romans 6.23 and peel off this. This is how it's done. This is how it's done. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. All you need to do to be saved and have the gift of God of eternal life is to accept the gift He offers. Here's a watch. To anyone who wants... Don't come up. I'm just using this as an illustration. Here's a watch. I give it to whoever wants it. This is what the evangelist does. See, if you don't come up and accept it, then you can't have the gift. Because I'm offering it, but you've got to come up and accept it. See, we're not going to do that with Romans 6.23. Because Romans 6.23 comes after Romans chapter 5 that says, By the obedience of one, many were made righteous. And, and Paul makes the point just more than once and, and more than three times and more than five times in verses 12 through 19 of that chapter. We're not going to do that with the Word of God as we go through the epistle to the Romans. Right. How many have ever heard that little presentation I gave? <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I wasn't making anything up. We've sat through many of those. Faith does not mean a sinner's prayer or inviting Jesus to be born again. It's an entirely different system of religion rather than one of works of the law. We're not going to distort and exalt a sinner's obedience in believing for eternal life in chapters 3 and 4, so when we get to chapters 5 about the second Adam, we don't know how to fit those statements in. Because when it says by the obedience of one, they're not sure what to do with that, because they've just used chapters 3 and 4 to require the obedience of the sinner for the same thing that chapter 5 is talking about. We're going to understand about Abraham being justified. When it says in Romans, when it says in James, and when it says anywhere else, like Galatians, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, that is an event of Genesis 15, verse 6. When God said, Abraham, come outside. Abraham, look up. Look at all the stars. There weren't very many streetlights in Canaan at that time. Look at all the stars. Count them. Because that's the number of your seed. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That was many years into a life of faith that Abraham had been, li- been living before chapter 15. Abraham was a man of faith in chapter 14. Abraham was a man of faith in chapter 13. Abraham was a man of faith in chapter 12. In fact, Abraham was a man of faith in chapter 11 when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Because Hebrews chapter 11 tells me that he left Ur of the Chaldeans... By faith. Do you know what they say? They look at those words. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Sinner, if you'll come forward right now and kneel down right here and say these words after me, God will make you righteous in heaven. Your name will be written in the book of life and you can go to heaven when you die. That didn't happen to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. 
an event in Abraham's life was used to tell others, especially these in the New Testament, that Abraham believed God and it was an evidence of his justification and righteousness before God because he believed the promise of God. That was an evidence that he was a just man because the just shall live by faith. We are going to understand that and we're going to go through Romans and we're not going to get messed up when we run upon Abraham, especially in chapters 3 and 4. How many have ever heard about the Romans road? The Romans road. Well, we've got a Romans road. Our Romans road just happens to make it through chapters 5, 8, 9, and 12. You know, their Romans road goes in at chapter 3 and comes out at chapter 6. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You're smiling. You've heard of the Romans road before? Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, that's you. Because it says all. All have sinned. You have sinned. You've come short of the glory of God. But I've got an answer for you. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All you have to do is accept the gift of eternal life and you can go to heaven when you die. They call that the Romans road. They stick a few other verses in there, but that's the crux of it right there. I just wanted to save time. Our Romans road goes in to Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and finds out that we're all condemned, but that we've been delivered by the obedience of one in Romans chapter 5. That it was according to God's foreknowledge, predestination, calling justification and glorification in Romans chapter 8. Because he's made vessels of honor, and he's made vessels of dishonor in Romans chapter 9. And if you're a vessel of honor, then you better be living your life so that it looks like the life of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 12. That's our Romans road. Lord, help us. We're not going to follow Martin Luther in mocking and despising the epistle to James because he misunderstood the book of Romans. He found the words, the just shall live by faith. And he distorted them out of all sense ability to where he described the book, the epistle of James as a straw epistle and to be despised and without inspired authority. Because it says, ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Right. We, better be able to rec- we better be able to reconcile those two statements and we will. Paul hardly deals with regeneration in this epistle. You know, what epistle does he deal with regeneration in? Ephesians chapter 2. He doesn't deal with vital salvation. But listen to me. Romans, you want to understand Romans? He doesn't deal with regeneration because regeneration wasn't an issue in the controversy. The issue in the controversy is legal salvation. How are we justified before God? Is it by the works of the law or is it by the Lord Jesus Christ laid hold of by faith? The importance of this issue that I just covered is very great. What kind of a method is he going to use? This epistle can be divided up a number of ways. Do you know the first division that takes place in this epistle? There's 16 chapters, but there is a very real division between chapters 11 and 12. And I love this division when the apostle makes it. At the end of chapter 11, Paul bursts bursts into praise to, to, to whom and of whom and through whom be all things forever and ever. Amen. And that ends the doctrinal section of the epistle to the Romans. And the first verse of chapter 12 starts off this way. Therefore, we beseech you, brethren. Therefore, based on 11 chapters of God's grace, we beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the 
Mercies of God. I've spent 11 chapters describing the mercies of God saving us from the condemnation that we most justly deserve. Now, we should conform our lives, not to this world, but transform them to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a division. The last five chapters are practical application of the truth. Because the grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches us something. And it doesn't teach us to glory in election and predestination. It teaches us to deny ourselves and live godly in this present world. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. There's many more divisions that could be made. We'll skip over all that. This epistle is incredibly logical because the Apostle Paul was incredibly logical. In this epistle, listen to this. Rhetorical questions are an effective way of teaching. There are 87 in 16 chapters. 87 questions. Some sincere, for Paul to give a sincere answer, some rhetorical, wanting to get your attention. That is just precious. He uses therefore 27 times, because 18, wherefore 7, because he's drawing so many conclusions, it's very much a a logical presentation of the truth where he is raising the objections of his hearers without them even being present. (coughs) Thou wilt then say unto me. That's just effective writing. Thou wilt then say unto me. And then he answers that objection. That's Romans chapter 9. There's many of those in this epistle. The epistle is very argumentative. It's very polemical. An aggressive attack and refutation of false ideas. He poses so many questions. And then ten times he answers those questions with, God forbid. God forbid. Because he raises the question of a skeptic and then says, God forbid. He, he, he answers the objections before they even have a chance to ask them in the, in the writing of this epistle. Thank you, Lord, for being so plain and powerful in the book of Romans. Amen. The theme is the gospel of free grace in of God in saving condemned sinners. Chapter 5 shows us the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 tells us the whole creation is moving in a grand drama till the day that the sons of God are made manifest to the universe. The theme is the logical and practical consequences of being saved. Chapter 6, what shall we say then? Listen to it. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That would be a logical conclusion from chapter 5, where righteousness is based on one man's obedience. Paul knew that he had been so thorough on presenting that point that someone might think we don't have to obey. What shall we say then to these things? Or what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. That's chapter 6. Chapter 9, we have election Presented Chapter 8, we have God's predestination presented. The great themes of this epistle. Our interpretation is going to be based on our presuppositions. When you approach the Word of God, you cannot approach it with an open mind to this extreme. We do not approach the Bible with an open mind that maybe Mormon baptism is true. If you approach the Bible with the idea that Mormon baptism may be true, you'll end up being a Mormon. We approach the Bible with presuppositions based on having already read 66 books and having understood the general theme and the general doctrine of the whole Bible. We just want the particulars that were given to the Roman saints. 
The verse that we use to justify this approach to the Bible is 2 Peter 1.20, which says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. There is nothing in Romans that is going to differ with what we've read in the other books of the Bible. And we've already read Romans as well. And so that's how we approach the book. We believe that eternal life is entirely an unconditional gift of God, and we believe that by seven proofs that are studies in themselves one by one. We believe that salvation is to be understood as having been accomplished in five phases. And by understanding those five phases, we understand the role of faith. We understand the role of Christ. We understand the role of the Spirit, the role of the Father, and final glorification. This is how we approach the book to interpret it. My brethren, if you wish the study was proceeding faster, be patient. Consider others and thoroughly grasp it. Make sure you understand. Go back and read Galatians and understand the importance of the view you need to take into the book of Galatians, where you will find the word faith used in a variety of senses, just like we're going to find it in Romans 3 and 4. We love the faith. We love believing. We want to be obedient to the faith. We want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do. But we also understand that it's not some little Arminian wrote prayer that justifies men. And we want to understand Romans much better than that. If you wish the study proceeded slower, then read and review and study what's going to be put on the website. The more familiar you are with Romans, the more you're going to benefit and enjoy the study. If you can read this epistle once a week or you read it once a month, that's reading one chapter every other day, then you're going to be familiar with what the chapters deal with so that when I say something about chapter 5 or I say something about chapter 8, you're already going to know what's there. And you're going to be absorbing this epistle so that at the end you are well established in it because that's our goal. Just like it was Paul's goal in Romans 16.25, as he closes out the epistle, he, God is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's what I want for you. Amen. Read and study Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians because all four of those epistles had to deal with the same controversy. Let's close with what we began with. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It is perceived, it is received, it is understood as God's power in saving us through Jesus Christ. But it's only perceived, received, and understood that way by those that believe. Those that are called, 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Those that are saved, 1 Corinthians one eighteen. It is not perceived, received, and understood that way by those that are perishing. Because those that are perishing, the gospel is foolishness unto them. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We want to take Romans, absorb it, and never be ashamed of it. Amen. We want to take the message of Jesus Christ, saving us from the damnation that chapters 1 and 2 are going to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt. By creation and conscience, we Gentiles are damned. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to, has delivered us. And he doth deliver, and he shall yet deliver by taking our bodies into heaven. We'll never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May Jesus Christ be praised.